All right, let's get into it. So in Galatians chapter 3, we're going to pick back up in verse 5, but kind of setting the stage for where we're at again. If you remember last week, we went through the first five verses, really the first four. Verse 5 is a transitional verse, and, and we'll read it. It begins with a therefore, um, but we'll read um, some of that transition and then go on. But Paul had asked the Galatian believers to remember back to when they had first believed in Jesus. He was asking them to recall their own salvation experience to the time when their eyes had been opened up clearly to see Jesus Christ and, and, and understood the message of the cross, the, 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 the purpose of Jesus' death on the cross in regards to application for their own lives. And after directing their thoughts back to that time, he asked the all-important question, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Because we talked about that last week, that when you come to put your faith in Jesus Christ, God then comes to dwell in us. God, the Holy Spirit, comes to dwell in us, and, and we become, at that point, new creations in Christ Jesus, right? Old things become new, and everything, old things pass away, and all things become new. And he said, he said did you receive the Holy Spirit at that time because you put your faith in what you heard or did you receive the Holy Spirit because you did the works of the law? Remember, Paul's having this discussion because false teachers had come into Galatia, the area of Galatia, and really all throughout Asia Minor, where Paul and Barnabas had been ministering and going on mission trips and sharing the gospel message with the Gentile people. And, and these false teachers were coming and preaching what Paul said was a false gospel message. That, that salvation in Jesus Christ by faith was not enough. That grace through faith was not enough. That they had to do other things. And being Gentiles, think about this now, as they were being called to the laws of Moses, these Gentiles who didn't even know the laws of Moses, right? They didn't know Jewish faith. They didn't know the laws of Moses. They hadn't read the Torah. The Torah. They hadn't been to Jerusalem. They hadn't been to the temple and seen the sacrificial systems or any of these things. They didn't even know it, and they didn't even know how to do the works that were found in the law. And, and so this question that they were being asked is kind of a, is pointing out the silliness of, of what they had turned to because they had freely received the Holy Spirit because they had put their faith in Jesus who paid the sin debt they, they owed in his, in, 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 by His sacrificial death on the cross. It had nothing to do with what they did themselves or keeping of the law and in any aspect of it. So in light of this, Paul called their attention to how foolish they were being by now trying to be made perfect or in their eyes righteous or, or holy, we might say, by their own works instead of just continuing on in faith and, and, and by and through the working of the Holy Spirit, which was the way that they had begun. In fact, if you look at verse 4 real quick, it says that Paul even pointed out there that if they were to continue down this road of trying to become perfect, holy, or righteous on their own, that everything that they had previously gained, all the power of the Holy Spirit, all the blessings of the Holy Spirit, it would have become a thing that would have been lost. Paul said it would have, would have, would have had it not of all just been for vain, for loss. Now, in these first four verses, Paul offered up, we talked about this last week, the, the, the first of six arguments that he's going to go on to make to contend against these, these false teachers as he enters in this discussion, this debate for salvation by grace through faith. And, and, and he, he, he offers up the first of these six arguments 
to prove that every aspect of salvation, to prove that salvation has always been the act of God, the good news message of God has always been an issue of God's grace. It's always been a means of God's grace and never by the law. And Paul engaged this debate, like I said, because these, these, these false teachers who had come to Galatia and who were actively deceiving many people there all throughout Galatia and Asia Minor, they weren't simply going to turn away from the, the, the trying to deceive people. And Paul was not going to back off. So the first of the six arguments, six arguments that we looked at last week was, was, a, was a personal argument. And Paul asked the Galatians to recall, remember their own experience. What, what personal effect, what change did you experience when you first believed? And we went through all that. We talked about the forgiveness of sins. We talked about the burden of sin and the weight of sin being removed. We talked about receiving the promise of eternal life, becoming new creations, having the indwelling of the Holy Spirit with now the manifestation of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, patience, long-suffering, all the gifts of the Spirit that were being manifested in their lives and building up in, as an edification for the body, the whole of the church there in Galatia. And and and. And now, in verses 5-14, through 14, Paul begins to balance things out, right? He's going to offer a second argument, and he brings this first point into check, if you will, as he presents a second argument, a scriptural argument, we might say a biblical argument, by referencing in these verses, 5-14, through 14, six Old Testament passages in order to shore up the truth of salvation having always been an act of God's, by an act of God's grace. And that's something that people receive through faith. Not through works, but through faith. And then at the end of this chapter, we'll get to it next week, Paul calls upon reason. And he, he, he spells out a logical argument. He's, okay, guys, let's think about this for just a second. And putting things together and connecting the dots. And, and, and meaning it's not always an emotional thing that we're called to. God calls us to engage our brains too when we come to Him. And that's found at the end of the chapter in verses 15-19. through 19. And, and, and he does this through covenant. He mentions covenant. He'll bring up the Old Testament covenant. He'll bring up the new covenant that we've entered into through the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and he talks about what a covenant is and how a covenant works. And so he says, let's think about this now and what we've actually entered into. And so as we begin to look at this spiritual argument today, picking back up in verse 5, we enter into it with the word therefore. Therefore. He who supplies, he says, because you have experienced Jesus Christ, because you have had a life-changing experience that's put you on an eternal, different path, your faith in Jesus Christ, he says, therefore, he who supplies the Holy Spirit to you, to whom you received by faith, right? He who supplies the Holy Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? And it's this question that sets the stage for the next argument as he goes on to reference the Old Testament, specifically starting with Abraham. He said, just as, verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel to Abraham beforehand saying this in you all the nations shall be blessed in other words not just the hebrew people not just the jewish people who were called by god who were chosen by god to be a special people set apart but it wasn't exclusive 
They were to be the vehicle, the means by which the rest of the world would come to know God the Creator. They were to be the witnesses, not only by the words they spoke, but the way they lived their lives, right? And God desired, even from the very beginning, that all nations would be blessed through them. So then, verse 9, those who are of faith, right, like Abraham, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Verse 10, for as many as are under the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Curse is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Verse 11, But that no one is justified. Right? That word justified means just as though you've not ever sinned. It's this positional standing that we receive before God. Right? We know as a result of our faith. And so Paul counteracting the false teaching, he says, We know that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. It's evident. Why? It says here, another quote, specifically from the book of Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. He says, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Verse 13 and 14, Christ has redeemed us. You can underline that word redeemed. It's a very awesome word. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. All right, guys, let's look back to verse 5, this transitional verse, because one of the important things for us to notice in this passage of Scripture is that Paul's now turning the Galatians away from that first argument that they called him to, from their subjective experience, from their individual and personal experience, to the objective Word of God, the unchanging, inerrant perfect Word of God. And in light of this, we can see how we today are never to judge the Scriptures. We're never to judge God's Word. We're never to look at God's Word through our own experiences to determine if they're wrong or right. On the contrary, we must test our own experiences, our spiritual experiences, by the Word of God and through the Word of God. In other words, if our spiritual experiences do not line up, with what the Word of God teaches us, then our spiritual experience, our quote-unquote spiritual experience, must not be accepted as the truth. I've heard people talk about dreams or visions that they've had when they've gone to sleep, and, or they'll come to me and say, God said this, and, and I'm like, well, God's Word doesn't say that. Did you eat pizza too late before you went to bed last night? Because maybe your experience isn't a spiritual experience at all. Maybe it's indigestion. You see, sadly, in the church today, there are many people who would rather trust in their experiences, these emotional things, right? Instead of the unchanging, unrelenting, perfect Word of God. In fact, there are many, I would call them double-minded men and women, because that's what the Bible calls them, within Christendom today, who lack the wisdom of God, who are proactively teaching that the Word of God cannot be trusted. Guys, if we don't have this, then we might as well give it up. If this isn't trustworthy, if this isn't reliable, which it is, we might as well just give it up. But even in Christianity today, there are people teaching this, and in doing so, they say things like this. It's God's revealed Word, as they refer to their spiritual experience, that should be accepted as truth, even if it is contrary or contradicts what is found in God's written Word. Consequently, 
what this has done is this opened up the door for what I would say, and me think this is harsh, that's fine, we can talk about it later, but I would say that it's allowed for all kinds of satanic and even ungodly things to be accepted and even promoted within the church today. So the teaching, this teaching that a subjective experience must be held accountable to the objective evidence that is found in the Word of God is a very important, essential doctrinal truth that must be applied to our lives, guys. I hear people all the time do things that's against God's Word, and it may be even subtle. It may not be blunt. It may not be just sin. It may just be like, well, God said, God told me to do this. And I'm going to be like, no, He didn't. No, He didn't. Well, how do you know? Because God has already said in His Word, and what you are saying doesn't line up with that. And I don't do that out of spite or malice or to shame someone it's just that any other path than the path that god's word declares is a path that leads to death and destruction that's what the bible says and we must pattern our lives after what god's word says we must encourage people to do the same and we must not be ever deceived by just our experiences and we can have spiritual experiences we should have spiritual experiences but we only know that they are from god if they line up with what god's word already declares to be true here's the thing if, we're, if we are willing to build our spiritual lives on our subjective experiences and not firstly on the unchanging words of God, of the unchanging truths of God's word, then here's the thing. We will not only be opened up to deception, guys, we will be unstable in all of our ways. Tossed about, led astray, no rudder, no compass, no guide, no direction. And man, when I look at the world today, it's full of confusion. That's exactly what I see going on with people who don't have the truth of God's Word as a foundation for their lives. Listen to what the psalmist wrote about in Psalm 119 about God's Word and about double-minded men. He said in verses 113 through 120, he said, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope, I put my hope in your Word. He says, so depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of God. Uphold me according to your promises that I may live. And let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. He says, you spurn all of those who go astray from your statutes for their cunning is in vain. And all the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, he says, I love your testimonies, and my flesh trembles of fear, of reverence, of respect, of honor, of fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. So in order to bring the Galatians' subjective experience that he called them to remember into check, he says, That's glad, I'm glad that you had this. This is right. You experienced something life-changing when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. He says to put that subjective experience into check, Paul now refers to the Word of God as he goes on to the second set of arguments. And specifically, six Old Testament passages of Scriptures in order to continue to make a case to prove, to continue to engage the debate, the debate that salvation, God's means of salvation for all people is by faith in Jesus Christ and not by any work, work of the law, or anything that we think that we can do on ourselves in order to be pleasing or accepted by God. It's only because of what God has done for us. And since these false teachers wanted to take the believers back into the law, I love where Paul begins because he shoots back by going, 
Okay, you want to talk about the law? You want to bring people back to the law? Let's go see what the law has to say. He goes, let's read it. Let's see what it has to say. And since the Hebrew people, they elevated, they magnified the place of Abraham in their religion, right? The father of their faith. The one whom God had called out from the land of the Chaldeans to set him apart, to make these covenantal promises from the very beginning. Because they magnified Abraham in their religion, Abraham, or, or Paul starts with Abraham as one of his witnesses. In other words, he's saying, let's call Abraham up to the witness stand. Let's look at his life. Let's look at what's been said about him to speak into this issue, to speak into this debate. And in doing so, Paul clearly points out here in verses 6 and in verse 7 that Abraham, even Abraham, from the very beginning was saved by his faith. Saved by his faith. And Paul refers back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which was a quote from another one of the Old Testament greats, another father to the Hebrew people, Moses himself. And in doing so, Paul demonstrated that God's righteousness was placed into Abraham's spiritual bank account, God's righteousness, which was given to Abraham and put into his spiritual bank account, was there was simply because Abraham believed in the promises of God. The promises that God spoke to him about receiving a land, about receiving an eternal inheritance, about receiving um, um, God's blessing upon his life for generation and generation so that all the nations around him would be blessed, that his descendants would be numbered as many as the seas of the sand of the shore. You can go and read about those different promises that God made. But it says that Abraham received God's righteousness and received these promises because he had faith, because he believed in what God said. Now that word accounted that we read here in verse 6, and then as it refers back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where it's there in the Hebrew, it means the same as imputed. It's a word that's used often throughout the New Testament in connection with this accounting word, encounted or imputed. It's used by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4, verses 22 to 25, when he's speaking about the same exact thing, Abraham and his righteousness and how he received it. And he says, therefore, it was accounted, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Why? Because he had faith. It was imputed to him. It was given to him. And when Paul wrote about these things, this wonderful truth, it wasn't something that just applied to the early church. It wasn't something that just applied to the Galatian believers. Rather, think about this now in relationship to our own lives. God's righteousness is something that has been accounted or imputed to us who believe in Him. God who raised Jesus, we're told, our Lord from the dead. God who delivered up Jesus for our sin, for our offenses. God who raised Jesus again from the grave into life for what the Bible says is our justification, our positional standing before Him. And this is exactly what we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. If you want to turn there, you can. I'll read it to you. Listen to this. It says, For He, God, made Him Jesus, who was sinless, who knew no sin, lived His whole life perfect without sin, always in obedience to God the Father, doing the will of the Father. It says, He, God, made Him Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 
And the Greek word that's used here in verse 6, for the word accounted, the original language that this Old Testament script was written in is the word lajizoehi. And it means to put in one's account, just like something we would do when we get a paycheck or, or um, uh, birthday money from your mom. Hi, Mom. She's here today. <laughs> just like we take those things and deposit them into our accounts, it's the same line of thinking. But there's something more in relationship to this word that is so powerful for us to understand. Because more, when God has deposited something into our account, something more has taken place. Because Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writing to the the Roman believers in verses 1 through 8, Romans chapter 4, teaches us that when God's righteousness was deposited into our, our spiritual bank accounts, it says and tells us that, What was in there was removed. And you want to know what was in our account beforehand? It was unrighteousness. It was the very thing that condemned us and brought us to the place of judgment. God deposited righteousness, His righteousness into our spiritual account because of Jesus Christ, and He removed our unrighteousness. And this means this. this. What this means is that our record, if you will, before God is, is always clean. And therefore, we who have put our faith in Jesus and have received the deposit of God's righteousness can never be brought into judgment for our sins. Why? Because Jesus paid for it on the debt. He on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Bible says he imputed righteousness to us and he took our unrighteousness out of our bank account and put it on himself and paid the debt that we owed. What a wonderful truth. And as we read on, we see that even with this being said, that Abraham himself from the very beginning, when God first called, when God first acted, well, he was saved by faith, and so were all believers. And we know that, that there was, as Paul was entering the discussion, that there was only one aspect of the argument, that there was another point of attack that these false teachers were also trying to make a case for. And we talked about it last week, and it was the case for circumcision. An outward act, right? Saying that the Gentiles... They could be saved by their faith, but they had to do other things. They also had to become Jewish in faith. And they said the way that you become Jewish in faith is to be like the the Jew who was circumcised. This outward sign that they were God's people. And then, and only then, could they become partakers of the promises that had been made to Abraham. It was like they were saying, once you do this, then you can truly also become an inheritor of the promises that God had spoken to Abraham. You can become spiritual sons and daughters, not through faith, but through the act of circumcision, a work, something that they were put forth to do. But Paul went on again to quote the Old Testament. He says, let's go back to the law. Let's see what God has always said about this, because you're wrong. This is what God has said to deal with this false thinking. And in verse 8, he said this. He said, he said, in the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, God being outside of time and writing about what He would do before He did it, preached the Gospel, the same Gospel message, the same good news message that we're reading of today, that we've received today, to Abraham beforehand saying this, in you all nations shall be blessed. 
all nations shall be blessed. Now, this promise that God had made to Abraham is recorded in multiple places. Not then Paul quotes it originally from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. All nations in you, all nations shall be blessed. But it's something that God reiterates over and over and over again to the Hebrew people for our benefit still today. That God has also chosen us from the beginning of time to come to Him through our faith in Jesus Christ, just like the Jew. It's in Genesis chapter 18, verse 18. Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. Genesis chapter 26, verse 4. Genesis chapter 28, verse 14. Just to list a few. And this promise is quoted by Paul now to prove that from the very beginning, Abraham's relationship with God, the blessing of salvation, has been also promised to all the nations of the world, not just to the Jew. It's part of God's plan from the beginning. And so the point is this, is that God Himself had first preached the good news message. Not a different message, the same message. It's always been the same message. The message of salvation by grace through faith in the Messiah. For those who came before Jesus, they look forward to the cross. For those of us who have come after the death of the cross, or Jesus on the death of the cross, we look backwards in faith. They look forward in faith, we look back in faith. And if God from the very beginning had promised to save the Jews and the Gentiles by grace through faith, then these false teachers or any false teacher that might come to us today, they were wrong and they will be wrong when they want someone to go back to any aspect of the law, whether it's circumcision, whether it's the keeping of feasts or Sabbaths or any other religious work that a person might put upon us, whether it's a pastor, a preacher, or even ourselves or someone within the church. So the fact of the matter is, is that this, when we think about inheritance and sons of Abraham or children of Abraham, the true children of Abraham, simply meaning those who inherit the promises of God that were made to Abraham, ha- has nothing to do with a physical descendancy. It doesn't have to do with a bloodline, right? It's not physical descent, but it is anyone who has believed in Jesus for salvation. The Bible says that we are then grafted in. We become partakers of God's promises through faith and we're grafted in. We become sons and daughters of Abraham. Spiritual sons and daughters. Verse 9 says, For all those of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. And the point is, these Jewish people, the Jewish people were very proud of their relationship to Abraham. That they were his descendants. And therefore, what they, what they concluded out of that is that they undeniably were rightful partakers of the promises of God. However, the problem with this is that they wrongly believe that this relationship to Abraham is the means by which they were guaranteed eternal salvation. But even John the Baptist, who was sent to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, he warned them, he warned the Hebrew people about this wrongful thinking in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, and said that their physical descent had nothing to do with a guarantee for spiritual life. Furthermore, Jesus also made this. These guys were putting their hope in Abraham and that they were descendants of Abraham and not putting their hope in Jesus Christ. Jesus made a clear distinction. He said that Abraham's seed physically and Abraham's children spiritually. He deals with this in John chapter 8. Go read it for yourself. Verses 33 through 47. And sadly, guys, this thought, let me say this to you, this thought, salvation, that salvation is somehow inherited or handed down, 
is still something that many people consider and believe in today. In fact, when I've had the opportunity to ask people why they believed they were going to heaven, some of the things that they'll say is, is they, they've said things just like, well, um, my mom and dad were Christians. They took me to church. My grandma, they were godly people. But the fact of the matter is no person gets to heaven because of their parents or because of how their parents lived. The physical descendancy does not have any kind of recourse in that. God's salvation is the result of a personal faith, a personal relationship. Matter of fact, Jesus said there will come a time when people will go stand before Him on Judgment Day and they'll say, Lord, Lord, have we not done this? Have we not done that? And He'll say, depart from Me, for I never knew You. And we know God. We come to know Christ through faith, a personal faith in Jesus. And it's never the result of someone else's faith. It's not because we can say, well, my mom knew you, my dad knew you, my grandma knew you. And so as we read on in verse 10, it says, For as many as are under the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Curse is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. Why, we would ask? Why is no one justified in the sight of the law? Because God has said this, the just shall live by faith. Those who are justified, those who are given a right standing positionally before God, live by faith. And in these next two verses, Paul again quotes from the Old Testament, now from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 27, verse 26, to further illustrate that salvation is by faith and not through obedience of the law. And in light of this, we see that Paul's point is this, is that salvation could never come from the obedience of the law. Why? Because he says the law brings a curse. Not a blessing. Paul would write in another passage, it says, "Law, the law brings forth death. It doesn't give life. It condemns. It doesn't bring restoration or forgiveness or redemption. And, and here's the reason why. Paul kind of alludes to it, and we'll look at other reasons here in Scripture, but the reason for why is this, is because the law, God's law, all the commands found in the Old Testament, right, the law demands perfect obedience. Demands obedience. This means obedience in all things at all times. Not obedience in some of the things, some of the times. Not obedience in a few of the things. And not even, not even obedience in, in most of the things found in the law. And I've, I've asked other people, other people have told me when I said, do you know if you're going to heaven or not? And they'll say, yeah, I'm going to heaven. I'll say, why do you believe that? They'll say, well, I'm a good person. And they'll think about it and they'll go, well, I'm better than most. I've never done this and I've never done I've never killed anybody. And, and it's, they believe it's like God in relationship to His commands and what He says that God somehow will judge on a curve like a sixth grade math teacher does. Where the top scores, whether all failing or not, will somehow get a passing grade. That's not how it works. Rather, the law, we know, God's Word tells us very clearly, very concisely, that the law demands 100% of obedience 100% of the time. And these false teachers were teaching obedience to the law for salvation back in Paul's day. Listen, they're no different than many people today who want to pick and choose from what parts of the law that they will live by, that they'll live in obedience to, as if the law is some kind of 
religious buffet that we can arbitrarily pick out and decide which ones we want to and which ones we don't want to obey. Now, let me say this. This is true. I've talked to people. Most people are, or most people who believe this, that, that, that keeping of the law is the way that you're holy, that you're righteous, that you're justified by God, in addition to faith, if that's what they want to add, they won't come right out and say that, that what they're proclaiming, what they're teaching is a matter of salvation for them. But they will use this language. They'll say it's a matter of holiness. They'll say it's a matter of righteousness. After all, we're called to be holy like God is holy. But the problem with their thinking is that they believe that they are somehow capable of producing holiness in their life. That they're somehow capable of producing righteousness in their life. And the Bible makes it clear that there's, none, there's, no, there's no chance for us in that. That our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. We don't even come close. We miss the mark. We can't do it. It has to be a work of God in us, empowering us, enabling us, equipping us, changing us, renewing us. And we desire those things, but we don't strive for them in the sense that we do it on our own. They say it's a matter of righteousness, a matter of holiness. However, what a person who says those things are ultimately declaring, they're saying that their righteousness, their holiness, what they're saying is, is then tied to their behavior, to their obedience to the laws and rules and regulations, maybe what God has put forth or what they have put forth in their other lives. And I'm here to tell you, those things, that kind of thinking is nothing more than a deception and a lie that robs people of the very grace, mercy, and goodness of God, the freedom of God. Here's the reason why. It's a lie on two fronts for two reasons. Firstly, because, like I said and already mentioned, when people are living like this, they never include the whole law in their hand-picked, if you will, of list of do's and don'ts of the, from the Word of God. It, 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 it's clear that if you want to obtain righteousness, the Bible says, if you want to obtain your holiness through the keeping of the law, that you have to keep it all. You can't pick and choose. And that's why, that's why righteousness and holiness can't be a condition of us keeping what the law says. Listen, in James, the Apostle James, he deals with this in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And he says it very clearly. It says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in just one point, he's guilty of it all. Why? For he, God, who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, he says, you've become a transgressor of the law. But I think this is the one that speaks to me the most. The second reason for why it's wrong to believe that righteousness, our righteousness, or our holiness is tied to some kind of outward behavior or to some kind of personal obedience to laws and rules and regulations is because the very idea of righteousness or holiness being the result of something we can do, let me say that again, the very idea of our righteousness or our holiness being tied to something that we can do is nothing more than self-righteousness. And the Bible, when I read it, is very clear in saying that all self-righteousness, any self-righteousness, is considered and seen by God as an abomination. 
And this is the very reason for why Paul that goes on in verse 11 and quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 in the Old Testament and says, the just shall live by his faith, not by the law. And this one verse is so important in the context of all of Scripture that the Holy Spirit inspired three complete New Testament books to explain this one verse, this one doctrinal truth found in this one verse, the just shall live by faith. This is what I mean. Follow me. The Greek word for just is the word um, daikaios, and it means righteous. It means upright, specifically in regards to being right with God. And in Romans chapter 1, verses 6 through 17, the Apostle Paul writes and says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek, the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith that is written, the just shall live by faith. And as the Holy Spirit inspired three New Testament books to explain that passage of Scripture from Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith, Romans being the verse book to tackle this, uh, it, it explains the just part. Who are the just? What does it mean to be the just? In addition to the book of Romans, we also have this book that we're studying through now, the book of Galatians. And it primarily explains the shall live part. The book of Romans, you can read it, look it through this lens, the just. The book of Galatians, as we're reading it and, and looking at it now, is the, is the shall live part of this doctrinal truth. And the very last part, which, we, which is the by faith part, is the, the, the whole underlying theme of the book of Hebrews that we studied through several months ago right where we have the biblical definition of faith the discussion of by faith and this doctrinal truth is kind of summarized in hebrews chapter 10 verses 38 where it says now the just shall live by faith but if anyone draws back what from faith god says my soul has no pleasure in him if we begin faith and turn back it's not pleasing to god if we if we begin in faith and try to continue in works, it's not pleasing to God. We live by faith. Now think about that just very simply. If God's the giver of life, the creator of life, the sustainer of life, how do we have life apart from Him? There is no life apart from the giver and the sustainer of life. And the just shall live by faith. The just shall maintain relationship with God through faith. We walk by faith. We live by faith. And we have life. And so it's very clear, as Paul kind of brings this to a conclusion, that, that there is nobody who could ever live by the law. For the law kills. It condemns. It shows that we're guilty before God, that we're deserving of God's judgment, of God's wrath. But in this debate, there are those then, and, and, and I think even today, who would make this argument. But it takes faith to even obey the law. And so Paul here in verse 12 goes on and quotes Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, and says, he says, the point is, doing the law is what God requires, not just believing it. Well, I have faith in the law. Well, you can't just have faith in the law. That's not what gets you there. It's believing it if that's the path you choose. In other words, the law says do and live, but grace says believe and live 
believe and live. And the bottom line is law cannot justify us. The law can never give us a right positional standing before God. Not that the law is imperfect, but we're imperfect. We can never meet the standard. It cannot give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. It cannot give us the gift of righteousness. It cannot give us holiness. It cannot give us life. And certainly, guys, it can't give us liberty. It can't give us freedom, the freedom that's found in Christ through faith. So why then go back to the law? Why turn away from that relationship of love and a life lived by faith in Jesus to abandon faith and grace for the law, for a work, for a religious thing, is to lose everything that God desires for us to experience in our day-to-day relationship with him that's to be filled with joy and peace and love and so why paul kind of gets to this at the end why give up jesus who redeemed us for the law that condemns us and he says in verse 13 christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us for it is written curses everyone who hangs on the tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And we're going to wrap it up with this, because these two verses, I think, perfectly summarize all that Paul's been saying in this section. Let me sum it up. Does the law put sinners under curse? Yes. If you decide to go back to the law, to the works, of, of, of your own righteousness to the works that you can do, seeking just to have a good behavior on the outside, you're cursed. But hear this, Jesus has lived. He's been crucified. He has been risen from the grave so that we might be redeemed from that curse. Do you want the blessings of Abraham? Do we want those blessings, those promises? Yes, we do. Well, hear this, it comes freely to all who put their faith in Jesus. Do you want the gift of the Holy Spirit? But you're a Gentile. Yes? Well, even this gift is given to us through Jesus. You see, all that we need is found in Jesus. The book of Colossians says it like this, that we are complete in Him. We lack nothing in Him. In our relationship with Him, in our day-to-day experiences as we walk with Him through this life. And therefore, there's no reason to go back or, or to go away from, from anything that Christ has done or Christ that offers us what he offers us. And to solidify this, Paul finishes with this last quote, Deuteronomy 21, 23, where he says, "Curses everyone who hangs on a tree. And of course, we know he's speaking about Jesus and the crucifixion. He wasn't referring back to anything else. When the Hebrew people put someone to death for violation of the law, they, the means was by stoning. And so there was no confusion here in what Jesus was, or what Paul was writing about. Jesus wasn't stoned and hung accumulation on a tree. Rather, he was nailed alive to a tree and he was left there to die. But by dying on the cross, Jesus bore the curse of the law for us. He took our sin upon himself and he set us free. And now the blessing of Abraham. What is that? Justification by faith and the gift of the Holy Spirit has become ours through our faith in Jesus Christ. And as we wrap this up this morning, I want to point out that this worm redeemed in verse 13, this word that I pointed out, this wonderful word, it means this. To purchase a slave for the purpose of setting him free. And this is an important thing for us to take note of because, listen, it is and it has been very possible for someone to purchase a slave down through time in history and to keep him as a slave. As a matter of fact, that's what most people did when they bought a slave. 
They kept them enslaved. But this is not what Jesus did when He redeemed us. By shedding His blood on the cross, He purchased us, He redeemed us so that we might be set free and not placed into a different kind of bondage. Yet these false teachers, with their false teachings, wanted the, the Hebrew, the, the, these, these, these Christian believers in Galatia, they wanted to lead them into another form of bondage. But Jesus died to set them free. Jesus died to set us free. Understand, salvation is not exchanging one form of bondage for another. Salvation is being set free from the bondage of sin and the bondage of the law in order that we might enter into the liberty of God's grace. Literally what that means, we enter into the unmerited, undeserved, perfect work of God that was done through His Son Jesus Christ who hung on the cross and said, it is finished, it is paid for, it is complete, it's all been done through Him for us who believe. Corey, if you want to come up, we're going to close with this. Why would anybody then, if this is true, why would we or anyone else be tempted to go back into any form of legalism? Anything that we think that we can do to make ourselves pleasing or righteousness righteous before God. And I'll tell you this, I think the reason why we can be so fascinated or so bewitched by trying to do outward good works for some kind of inward state of being is this, is that legalism appeals to our flesh. Our flesh, we love to be religious. To obey the laws, to observe holy, holy occasions, to, to even fast. And guys, certainly there's nothing wrong with obedience to God's Word and fasting and even solemn times of spiritual worship provided that they are um, something that is being motivated, empowered by the Holy Spirit and not something that we try to take on ourselves. Furthermore, I think the reason why we are tempted into this kind of way of life is because our flesh, we like to boast about our religious achievements. About how many prayers were offered, or about how many gifts were given, or about how many other good things we've done. Did you not see this kind of mentality? And that's why it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for salvation is by grace through faith, not by works. Why? Because if it was by works, he goes on to say, we just boast about it. We love to boast. Which in turn, when we do that, when we're speaking of our good things, it's usually spoken not in accordance to what God's Word says. It's usually in comparison to everybody else around us, right? Look, I'm not like them. Look at what I've done. And look at what they're doing. And usually when we have that comparison, it's also condemnation. That's a sad thing. It's a, that's a sad thing that creeps into the church and into our hearts when we elevate ourselves based upon our outward behaviors and then condemn others who are not in the place that we see ourselves in. We don't do these good things. And that's something else that our flesh loves to do. And may it not be so among us. And so the person who depends upon religion, guys, they can measure themselves and compare themselves with others. But the true believer, we measure ourselves with Christ and Christ alone not of the Christians. There's no room for pride in our spiritual walk because Jesus does it all. We live by grace, the grace of God. And may that be our prayer this morning as we wrap that up. Father, I pray 
that we would all understand that we've been saved by grace through faith, but, but equally importantly, that we would see that we only live by grace. May we live in your grace. May we continue in your grace. And Lord, as we do so, may this church, our church family, our hearts, our lives, be inviting to others who are out there and not condemning. Lord, you saved us while we were still in the midst of our sins. You still continue to walk with us and love us and be with us even though we still continue to sin. Father, our only hope is in you. May we not pretend that it's something else in any other way and, 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 and keep people at a distance from you who need you just as much as we need you still today. Father, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us as we sing one last song together?